be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Climbs by L. M. Montgomery. Chapter 3 In the Watches of the Night In the last chapter, Emily received a warning about Dean Priest from Old Kelly. In this chapter, Emily reflects on her transition from childhood into adulthood. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 3 In the Watches of the Night Some of us can recall the exact time in which we reached the certain milestones on life's road. The wonderful hour when we passed from childhood to girlhood. The enchanted, beautiful, or perhaps shattering and not-so-nice hour when girlhood was suddenly womanhood. The chilling hour when we faced the fact that youth was definitely behind us. The peaceful, sorrowful hour of the realisation of age. Emily Starr never forgot the night when she passed the first milestone and left childhood behind her forever. Every experience enriches life, and the deeper such an experience, the greater the richness it brings. That night of great mystery and strange delight ripened her heart and mind like the passage of years. It was a night early in July. The day had been one of intense heat. Aunt Elizabeth had suffered so much from it that she decided she would not go to prayer meeting. Aunt Laura and Cousin Jimmy and Emily went. Before leaving, 
Emily asked and obtained Aunt Elizabeth's permission to go home with Ilsa Burnley after the meeting and spend the night. This was a rare treat. Aunt Elizabeth did not approve of all-night absences as a general thing. But Dr. Burnley had to be away, and his housekeeper was temporarily laid up with a broken ankle. Ilsa had asked Emily to come over for the night, and Emily was permitted to go. Ilsa did not know this, hardly hoped for it, in fact, but was to be informed at prayer meeting. If Ilsa had not been late, Emily would have told her before meeting went in, and the mischances of the night would probably have been averted. But Ilsa was, as usual, late, and everything else followed in course. Emily sat in the Murray pew, near the top of the church by the window that looked out into the grove of fir and maple that surrounded the little white church. This prayer meeting was not the ordinary weekly sprinkling of a faithful few. It was a special meeting, held in view of the approaching Communion Sunday, and the speaker was not young, earnest Mr. Johnson, to whom Emily always liked to listen, in spite of her blunder at the ladies' aid supper, but an itinerant evangelist lent by Shrewsbury for one night. His fame brought out a church full of people, but most of the audience declared afterwards that they would much rather have heard their own Mr. Johnson. Emily looked at him with her level, critical gaze and decided that he was oily and unspiritual. She heard him through a prayer and thought, Giving God good advice and abusing the devil isn't praying. She listened to his discourse for a few minutes and made up her mind that he was blatant and illogical and sensational and then proceeded, coolly, to shut her mind and ears to him and disappear into dreamland, something which she could generally do at will when anxious to escape from discordant realities. Outside, moonlight was still sifting in a rain of silver through the firs and maples, though an ominous bank of cloud was making up in the northwest and repeating rumblings of thunder came on the silent air of the hot summer night. A windless night 
for the most part, though occasionally a sudden breath that seemed more like a sigh than a breeze brushed through the trees and set their shadows dancing in weird companies. There was something strange about the night in its mingling of placid, accustomed beauty with the omens of rising storm that intrigued Emily, and she spent half the time of the evangelist's address in composing a mental description of it for her Jimmy book. The rest of the time, she studied such of the audience as were within her range of vision. This was something that Emily never wearied of in public assemblages, and the older she grew, the more she liked it. It was fascinating to study those varied faces and speculate on the histories written in the mysterious hieroglyphics over them. They had all their inner, secret lives, those men and women, known to no one but themselves and God. Others could only guess at them, and Emily loved this game of guessing. At times, it seemed veritably to her that it was more than guessing, that in some intense moments she could pass into their souls and read therein hidden motives and passions that were, perhaps, a mystery even to their possessors. It was never easy for Emily to resist the temptation to do this when the power came, although she never yielded to it without an uneasy feeling that she was committing trespass. It was quite a different thing from soaring on the wings of fancy into an ideal world of creation. Quite different from the exquisite, unearthly beauty of the flash. Neither of these gave any moments of pause or doubt. But to slip on tiptoe through some momentarily unlatched door, as it were, and catch a glimpse of masked, unuttered, unutterable things in the heart and souls of others was something that always brought, along with its sense of power, a sense of the forbidden, a sense even of sacrilege. Yet Emily did not know if she would ever be able to resist the allure of it. She had always peered through the door and seen the things before she realised that she was doing it. They were nearly always terrible things. Secrets are generally terrible. Beauty is not often hidden, only ugliness and deformity. 
Elder Forsyth would have been a persecutor in old times, she thought. He has the face of one. This very minute, he is loving the preacher, because he is describing hell. And Elder Forsyth thinks all his enemies will go there. Yes, that is why he is looking pleased. I think Mrs. Bells flies off on a broomstick of nights. She looks it. Four hundred years ago, she would have been a witch, and the elder Forsyth would have burned her at the stake. She hates everybody. It must be terrible to hate everybody, to have your soul full of hatred. I must try to describe such a person in my Jimmy book. I wonder if hate has driven all love out of her soul, or if there is a little bit left in it for anyone or anything. If there is, it might save her. That would be a good idea for a story. I must jot it down before I go to bed. I'll borrow a bit of paper from Ilsa. No, here's a bit in my hymn book. I'll write it now. I wonder what all these people would say if they were suddenly asked what they wanted most and had to answer truthfully. I wonder how many of these husbands and wives would like a change. Chris Farah and Mrs. Chris would. Everybody knows that. I can't think why I feel so sure that James Beatty and his wife would too. They seem to be quite contented with each other. But once, I saw her look at him when she did not know anyone was watching. Oh, it seemed to me I saw right into her soul, through her eyes, and she hated him and feared him. She is sitting there now, beside him, little and thin and dowdy, and her face is grey and her hair is faded. But she, herself, is one red flame of rebellion. What she wants most is to be free from him, or just to strike back once. That would satisfy her. There's Dean. I wonder what brought him to prayer meeting. His face is very solemn, but his eyes are mocking Mr. Sampson. What's that Mr. Sampson saying? Oh, something about the wise virgins. I hate the wise virgins. 
I think they were horribly selfish. They might have given the poor foolish ones a little oil. I don't believe Jesus meant to praise them any more than he meant to praise the unjust steward. I think he was just trying to warn foolish people that they must not be careless and foolish, because if they were, prudent, selfish folks would never help them out. I wonder if it's very wicked to feel that I'd rather be outside with the foolish ones, trying to help and comfort them, than inside feasting with the wise ones. It would be more interesting too. There's Mrs. Kent and Teddy. Oh, she wants something terribly. I don't know what it is, but it's something she can never get, and the hunger for it goads her night and day. That is why she holds Teddy so closely, I know. But I don't know what it is that makes her so different from other women. I can never get a peep into her soul. She shuts everyone out. The door is never unlatched. What do I want most? It is to climb the alpine path to the very top and write upon its shining scroll a woman's humble name. We're all hungry. We all want some bread of life. But Mr. Sampson can't give it to us. I wonder what he wants most. His soul is so muggy, I can't see into it. He has a lot of sordid wants. He doesn't want anything enough to dominate him. Mr. Johnson wants to help people and preach truth. He really does. And Aunt Janie wants most of all to see the whole heathen world Christianized. Her soul hasn't any dark wishes in it. I know what Mr. Carpenter wants. His one lost chance again. Catherine Morris wants her youth back. She hates us younger girls because we are young. Old Malcolm Strang just wants to live. Just one more year. Always just one more year. Just to live. Just not to die. It must be horrible to have nothing to live for, except just to escape dying. Yet he believes in heaven. He thinks he will go there. If he could see my flash just once, he wouldn't hate the thought of dying so. Poor old man. 
and Mary Strang wants to die, before something terrible she is afraid of tortures her to death. They say it's cancer. There's mad Mr. Morrison, up in the gallery. We all know what he wants. To find his Annie. Tom Sibley wants the moon, I think, and knows he can never get it. That's why people say he's not all there. Amy Crabb wants Max Terry to come back to her. Nothing else matters to her. I must write all these things down in my Jimmy book tomorrow. They are fascinating. But, after all, I like writing of beautiful things better. Only, these things have a tang. Beautiful things don't have some way. Those woods out there, how wonderful they are in their silver and shadow. The moonlight is doing strange things to the tombstones. It makes even the ugly ones beautiful. But it's terribly hot. It is smothering here. And those thunder growls are coming nearer. I hope Ilsa and I will get home before the storm breaks. Oh, Mr. Sampson, Mr. Sampson, God isn't an angry God. You don't know anything about him if you say that. He's sorrowful, I'm sure, when we're foolish and wicked, but he doesn't fly into tantrums. Your God and Ellen Green's God are exactly alike. I'd like to get up and tell you so, but it isn't a Murray tradition to sass back in church. You make God ugly, and he's beautiful. I hate you for making God ugly, you fat little man. Whereupon Mr. Sampson, who had several times noted Emily's intent, probing gaze, and thought he was impressing her tremendously with a sense of her unsaved condition, finished with a final, urgent whoop of entreaty and sat down. The audience in the close, oppressive atmosphere of the crowded, lamp-lit church gave an audible sigh of relief and scarcely waited for the hymn and benediction before crowding out to purer air. Emily, caught in the current, and parted from Aunt Laura, was swept out by way of the choir door to the left of the pulpit. It was some time before she could disentangle herself from the throng and hurry around to the front where she expected to meet Ilsa. Here was another dense, though rapidly thinning crowd, 
in which she found no trace of Ilsa. Suddenly Emily noticed that she did not have her hymn book. Hastily, she dashed back to the choir door. She must have left her hymn book in the pew, and it would never do to leave it there. In it she had placed for safekeeping a slip of paper on which she had furtively jotted down some fragment notes during the last hymn. A rather biting description of scrawny Miss Potter in the choir. A couple of satiric sentences regarding Mr. Sampson himself and a few random fancies which she desired most of all to hide, because there was in them something of dream and vision which would have made the reading of them by alien eyes a sacrilege. Old Jacob Banks, the sexton, a little blind and more than a little deaf, was turning out the lamps as she went in. He had reached the two on the wall behind the pulpit. Emily caught her hymn book from the rack. Her slip of paper was not in it. By the faint gleam of light, as Jacob Banks turned out the last lamp, she saw it on the floor, under the seat of the pew in front. She kneeled down and reached after it. As she did so, Jacob went out and locked the choir door. Emily did not notice his going. The church was still faintly illuminated by the moon that as yet outrode the rapidly climbing thunderheads. That was not the right slip of paper after all. Where could it be? Oh, here, at last. She caught it up and ran to the door, which would not open. For the first time, Emily realised that Jacob Banks had gone, that she was alone in the church. She wasted time trying to open the door, then in calling Mr. Banks. Finally, she ran down the aisle into the front porch. As she did so, she heard the last buggy turn grindingly at the gate and drive away. At the same time, the moon was suddenly swallowed up by the black clouds and the church was engulfed in darkness. Close, hot, smothering, almost tangible darkness. Emily screamed in sudden panic, beat on the door, frantically twisted the handle, screamed again. Oh, everybody could not have gone. Surely somebody would hear her. 
Aunt Laura. Cousin Jimmy. Ilsa. Then finally, in a wail of despair. Oh, Teddy. Teddy. A white blue stream of lightning swept the porch, followed by a crash of thunder. One of the worst storms in Blair Water Annuals had begun, and Emily Starr was locked alone in the dark church in the Maple Woods. She, who had always been afraid of thunderstorms with a reasonless, instinctive fear which she could never banish and only partially control. She sank, quivering, on a step of the gallery stairs and huddled there in a heap. Surely someone would come back when it was discovered she was missing. But would it be discovered? Who would miss her? Aunt Laura and Cousin Jimmy would suppose she was with Ilsa, as had been arranged. Ilsa, who had evidently gone, believing that Emily was not coming with her, would suppose she had gone home to New Moon. Nobody knew where she was. Nobody would come back for her. She must stay here, in this horrible, lonely, black, echoing place. For now the church she knew so well and loved for its old associations of Sunday school and song and homely faces of dear friends had become a ghostly, alien place full of haunting terror. There was no escape. The windows could not be opened. The church was ventilated by transom-like panes near the top of them, which were opened and shut by pulling a wire. She could not get up to them, and she could not have got through them if she had. She cowered down on the step shuddering from head to foot. By now, the thunder and lightning were almost incessant. Rain blew against the windows, not in drops, but sheets, and intermittent volleys of hail bombarded them. The wind had risen suddenly with the storm and shrieked around the church. It was not her old dear friend of childhood, the bat-winged, misty wind woman, but a lesion of yelling witches. The prince of the power of the air rules the wind, she had heard mad Mr. Morris say once. Why should she think of mad Mr. Morris now? How the windows rattled, as if demon riders of the storm were shaking them. 
she had heard a wild tale of someone hearing the organ play in the empty church one night several years ago. Suppose it began playing now. No fancy seemed too grotesque to come true. Didn't the stairs creak? The blackness between the lightnings was so intense that it looked thick. Emily was frightened of it touching her and buried her face in her lap. Presently, however, she got a grip on herself and began to reflect that she was not living up to Murray traditions. Murrays were not supposed to go to places like this. Murrays were not foolishly panicky in thunderstorms. Those old Murrays sleeping in the private graveyard across the pond would have scorned her as a degenerate descendant. Aunt Elizabeth would have said that it was the star coming out in her. She must be brave. After all, she had lived through worse hours than this. The night she had eaten of Lofty John's poisoned apple. The afternoon she had fallen over the rocks at Malvern Bay. This had come so suddenly on her that she had been in the throes of terror before she could brace herself against it. She must pick up. Nothing dreadful was going to happen to her. Nothing worse than staying all night in the church. In the morning, she could attract the attention of someone passing. She'd been here over an hour now, and nothing had happened to her. Unless, indeed, her hair had turned white as she understood here sometimes did. There had been such a funny, crinkling, crawling feeling at the roots of it at times. Emily held out her long braid, ready for the next flash. When it came, she saw that her hair was still black. She sighed with relief and began to chirk up. The storm was passing. The thunder peals were growing fainter and fewer, though the rain continued to fall, and the wind to drive and shriek around the church, whining through the big keyhole eerily. Emily straightened her shoulders and cautiously let down her feet to a lower step. She thought she had better try to get back into the church. If another cloud came up, a steeple might be struck. Steeples were always getting struck, she remembered. It might come crashing down on the porch, right over her. She would go in and sit down in the Murray pew. She would be cool and sensible 
and collected. She was ashamed of her panic, but it had been terrible. All around her now was a soft, heavy darkness. Still with that same eerie sensation of something you could not touch, born perhaps of the heat and humidity of the July night. The porch was so small and narrow, she would not feel so smothered and oppressed in the church. She put out her hand to grasp a stair rail and pull herself to her cramped feet. Her hand touched, not the stair rail. Merciful heavens, what was it? Something hairy. Emily's shriek of horror froze on her lips. Padding footsteps passed down the steps beside her. A flash of lightning came, and at the bottom of the steps was a huge black dog, which had turned and was looking up at her before he was blotted out in the returning darkness. Even then, for a moment, she saw his eyes blazing redly at her, like a fiend's. Emily's hair roots began to crawl and crinkle again. A very large, very cold caterpillar began to creep slowly up her spine. She could not have moved a muscle had life depended on it. She could not even cry out. The only thing she could think of at first was the horrible demon hound of the Manx castle in Purville of the Peak. For a few minutes, her terror was so great that it turned her physically sick. Then, with an effort that was unchildlike in its determination, I think it was at that moment Emily wholly ceased to be a child. She recovered her self-control. She would not yield to fear. She set her teeth and clenched her trembling hands. She would be brave, sensible. That was only a commonplace Blairwater dog which had followed its owner. Some rapscallion boy. Into the gallery and got itself left behind. The thing had happened before. A flash of lightning showed her that the porch was empty. Evidently, the dog had gone into the church. Emily decided that she would stay where she was. She had recovered from her panic but she did not want to feel the sudden touch of a cold nose or hairy flank in the darkness. She could never forget the awfulness of the moment when she had touched the creature. 
It must be all of twelve o'clock now. It had been ten when the meeting came out. The noise of the storm had for the most part died away. The drive and shriek of the wind came occasionally, but between its gusts there was silence, broken only by the diminishing raindrops. Thunder still muttered faintly and lightning came at frequent intervals, but of a paler, gentler flame, not the rendering glare that had seemed to wrap the very building in intolerable blue radiance and scorch her eye. Gradually, her heart began to beat normally. The power of rational thought returned. She did not like her predicament, but she began to find dramatic possibilities in it. Oh, what a chapter for her diary, or her Jimmy book, and beyond it, for that novel she would write some day. It was a situation expressly shaped for the heroine, who must, of course, be rescued by the hero. Emily began constructing the scene, adding to it, intensify it, hunting for words to express it. This was rather interesting, after all. Only she wished she knew just where the dog was. How weirdly the pale lightning gleamed on the gravestones, which she could see through the porch window opposite her. How strange the familiar valley beyond looked in the recurrent illuminations. How the wind moaned and sighed and complained but it was her own wind woman again. The wind woman was one of her childish fancies that she had carried over into maturity, and it comforted her now with a sense of ancient companionship. The wild riders of the storm were gone. Her fairy friend had come back. Emily gave a sigh that was almost contentment. The worst was over, and really, hadn't she behaved pretty well? She began to feel quite self-respecting again. All at once, Emily knew she was not alone. How she knew it, she could not have told. She had heard nothing. Seen nothing, felt nothing, and yet she knew, beyond all doubt or dispute, that there was a presence in the darkness above her, on the stairs. She turned and looked up. It was horrible to look, but it was less horrible to feel that something was in front of you than that it was behind you. 
She stared with wildly dilated eyes in the darkness, but she could see nothing. Then she heard a low laugh above her, a laugh that almost made her heart stop beating. The very dreadful, inhuman laughter of the unsound in mind. She did not need the lightning flash that came then to tell her that mad Mr. Morrison was somewhere on the stair above her. But it came. She saw him. She felt as if she were sinking in some icy gulf of coldness. She could not even scream. The picture of him etched on her brain by the lightning, never left her. He was crouched five steps above her, with his grey head thrust forward. She saw the frenzied gleam of his eyes, the fang-like yellow teeth exposed in a horrible smile, the long, thin, blood-red hand outstretched towards her, almost touching her shoulder. Sheer panic shattered Emily's trance. She bounded to her feet with a piercing scream of terror. Teddy, Teddy, save me, she shrieked wildly. She did not know why she called for Teddy. She did not even realise that she had called him. She only remembered it afterwards, as one might recall the waking shriek in a nightmare. She only knew that she must have help, that she would die if that awful hand touched her. It must not touch her. She made a mad spring down the steps, rushed into the church and up the aisle. She must hide before the next flash came, but not in the Murray pew. He might look for her there. She dived into one of the middle pews and crouched down into the corner of the floor. Her body was bathed in an ice-cold perspiration. She was wholly in the grip of uncontrollable terror. All she could think of was that it must not touch her, that red hand of the mad old man. Moments passed that seemed like years. Presently, she heard footsteps, footsteps that came and went, yet seemed to approach her slowly. Suddenly, she knew what he was doing. He was going into every pew, not waiting for the lightning to feel about for her. He was looking for her then. She had heard that sometimes... He followed young girls, thinking they were Annie. If he caught them, he held them with one hand 
and stroked their hair and face fondly with the other, mumbling foolish, senile endearments. He had never harmed anyone, but he had never let anyone go until she was rescued by some other person. It was said that Mary Paxton of Derry Pond had never been quite the same again. Her nerves never recovered from the shock. Emily knew that it was only a question of time before he would reach the pew where she crouched, feeling about with those hands. All that kept her senses in her frozen body was the thought that if she lost consciousness, those hands would touch her, hold her, caress her. The next lightning flash showed him entering the adjoining pew. Emily sprang up and out and rushed to the other side of the church. She hid again. He would search her out, but she would again elude him. This might go on all night. A madman's strength would outlast hers. At last, she might fall exhausted, and he would pounce on her. For what seemed like hours to Emily, this game of hide-and-seek lasted. It was in reality about half an hour. She was hardly a rational creature at all, any more than her demented pursuer. She was merely a crouching, springing, shrieking thing of horror. Time after time, he hunted her out with his cunning, implacable patience. The last time she was near one of the porch doors, and in desperation, she sprang through it and slammed it in his face. With the last ounce of her strength, she tried to hold the knob from its turning grasp. And as she strove, she heard, was she dreaming? Teddy's voice calling to her from the steps outside the outer door. Emily, are you in there? She did not know how he had come. She did not wonder. She only knew he was there. Teddy, I'm locked in the church, she shrieked. And mad Mr. Morrison is in here. Oh, quick, save me. The key of the door is hanging up in there on a nail at the right side, shouted Teddy. Can you get it and unlock the door? If you can't, I'll smash the porch window. The clouds broke at that moment and the porch was filled with moonlight. In it, she saw plainly the big key, hanging high on the wall beside the front door. She dashed at it and caught it 
as mad Mr. Morrison wrenched upon the door and sprang into the porch, his dog behind him. Emily unlocked the outer door and stumbled out into Teddy's arms, just in time to elude that outstretched, blood-red hand. She heard mad Mr. Morrison give a wild, eerie shriek of despair as she escaped him. Sobbing, shaking, she clung to Teddy. Oh, Teddy, take me away. Take me quick. Oh, don't let him touch me, Teddy. Don't let him touch me. Teddy swung her behind him and faced mad Mr. Morrison on the stone step. How dare you frighten her so, he demanded angrily. Mad Mr. Morrison smiled deprecatingly into the moonlight. All at once, he was not wild or violent. Only a heartbroken old man who sought his own. I want Annie, he mumbled. Where is Annie? I thought I'd found her in there. I only wanted to find my beautiful Annie. Annie isn't here, said Teddy, tightening his hold on Emily's cold little hand. Can you tell me where Annie is? entreated mad Mr. Morrison, wistfully. Can you tell me where my dark-haired Annie is? Teddy was furious with mad Mr. Morrison for frightening Emily. But the old man's piteous entreaty touched him. And the artist in him responded to the values of the picture represented against the background of the white, moonlit church. He thought he would like to paint mad Mr. Morrison as he stood there, tall and gaunt, in his grey duster coat, with his long, white hair and beard, and his ageless quest in his hollow, sunken eyes. No, no, I don't know where she is, he said gently. But I think you will find her sometime. Mad Mr. Morrison sighed. Oh, yes. Sometime I will overtake her. Come, my dog. We will seek her. Followed by his old black dog, he went down the steps across the green and down the long, wet, tree-shadowed road. So going, 
he passed out of Emily's life. She never saw mad Mr. Morrison again. But she looked after him understandingly, and she forgave him. To himself, he was not the repulsive old man he seemed to her. He was a gallant young lover, seeking his lost and lovely bride. The pitiful beauty of his quest intrigued her, even in the shaking reaction from her hour of agony. Poor Mr. Morrison, she sobbed, as Teddy half-led, half-carried her to one of the old, flat gravestones at the side of the church. They sat there until Emily recovered composure and managed to tell her tale, or the outline of it. She felt she could never tell, perhaps not even write in a Jimmy book, the whole of its raking horror. That was beyond words. And to think, she sobbed, that the key was there all the time. I never knew it. Old Jacob Banks always locks the front door with its big key on the inside and then hangs it up on that nail, said Teddy. He locks the choir door with a little key, which he takes home. He has always done that since the time, three years ago, when he lost the big key and was weeks before he found it. Suddenly, Emily awoke to the strangeness of Teddy's coming. How did you happen to come, Teddy? Why, I heard you calling me, he said. You did call me, didn't you? Yes, said Emily, slowly. I called for you when I saw mad Mr. Morrison first. But, Teddy, you couldn't have heard me. You couldn't. The Tansy Patch is a mile from here. I did hear you, said Teddy, stubbornly. I was asleep, and it woke me up. You called Teddy. Teddy, save me. It was your voice, as plain as I ever heard it in my life. I got right up and hurried on with my clothes and came here as fast as I could. How did you know I was here? Why, I don't know, said Teddy, confusedly. I didn't stop to think. I just seemed to know you were in the church when I heard you calling me. And I must get here as quickly as I could. It's... It's all rather funny, he concluded. It... 
It frightens me a little, Emily shivered. Aunt Elizabeth says I have second sight. You remember Ilse's mother. Mr. Carpenter says I'm psychic. I don't know just what that means, but think I'd rather not be it. She shivered again. Teddy thought she was cold and, having nothing else to put around her, put his arm, somewhat tentatively, since Murray pride and Murray dignity might be outraged. Emily was not cold in body, but a little chill had blown over her soul. Something supernatural, some mystery she could not understand, had brushed too near her in that strange summoning. Involuntarily, she nestled a little closer to Teddy, acutely conscious of the boyish tenderness she sensed behind the aloofness of his boyish shyness. Suddenly, she knew that she liked Teddy better than anybody, better even than Aunt Laura, Ilsa, or Dean. Teddy's arm tightened a little. Anyhow, I'm glad I got here in time, he said. If I hadn't, that crazy old man might have frightened you to death. They sat so for a few minutes in silence. Everything seemed very wonderful and beautiful and a little unreal. Emily thought she must be in a dream or in one of her own wonder tales. The storm had passed and the moon was shining clearly once more. The cool, fresh air was threaded with beguiling voices. The fitful voice of raindrops falling from the shaken boughs of the maple woods behind them. The freakish voice of the wind woman around the white church. The far-off, intriguing voice of the sea. And, still finer, and rarer, the little, remote, detached voices of the night. Emily heard them all, more with the ears of her soul than of her body, it seemed, as she had never heard them before. Beyond were fields and groves and roads, pleasantly suggestive and elusive as if brooding over elfish secrets in the moonlight. Silver-white daisies were nodding and swaying all over the graveyard above the graves, remembering the graves that were forgotten. An owl laughed delightfully to itself in the old pine. At the magical sound, Emily's mystic flash swept over her, swaying her like a strong wind. 
she felt as if she and Teddy were all alone in this wonderful new world, created for themselves, only out of youth and mystery and delight. They seemed, themselves, to be part of the faint, cool fragrance of the night, of the owl's laughter, of the daisies blowing in the shadowy air. As for Teddy, he was thinking that Emily looked very sweet in the pale moonshine, with her fringed, mysterious eyes and the little, dark love curls clinging to her ivory neck. He tightened his arm a little more, and still Murray pride and Murray dignity made not a particle of protest. Emily, whispered Teddy, you're the sweetest girl in the world. The words have been said so often by so many millions of lads to so many millions of lasses that they ought to be worn to tatters. But when you hear them for the first time, in some magic hour of your teens, they are as new and fresh and wondrous as if they had just drifted over the hedges of Eden. Madame, whoever you are, and however old you are, be honest and admit that the first time you heard those words on the lips of some shy sweetheart was the greatest moment of your life. Emily thrilled from the crown of her head to the toes of her slippered feet with a sensation of hitherto unknown and almost terrifying sweetness. A sensation that was to sense what her flash was to spirit. It is quite conceivable and not totally reprehensible that the next thing that happened might have been a kiss. Emily thought Teddy was going to kiss her. Teddy knew he was, and the odds are that he wouldn't have had his face slapped as Jeff North had had. But it was not to be. A shadow that had slipped in at the gate and drifted across the wet grass halted besides them and touched Teddy's shoulder just as he bent his glossy black head. He looked up, startled. Emily looked up. Mrs. Kent was standing there, bareheaded, her scarred face clear in the moonlight, looking at them tragically. Emily and Teddy both stood up so suddenly that they seemed veritably to have been jerked to their feet. Emily's fairy world vanished like a dissolving bubble. She was in a different world altogether, an absurd, 
ridiculous one. Yes, ridiculous. Everything had suddenly become ridiculous. Could anything be more ridiculous than to be caught here with Teddy, by his mother, at two o'clock at night? What was that horrid word she had lately heard for the first time? Oh, yes. Spooning. That was it. Spooning on George Wharton's eighty-year-old tombstone. That was how other people would look at it. How could a thing be so beautiful one moment, and so absurd the next? She was one horrible scorch of shame from head to feet. And Teddy, she knew Teddy was feeling like a fool. To Mrs. Kent, it was not ridiculous. It was dreadful. To her abnormal jealousy, the incident had the most sinister significance. She looked at Emily with her hollow, hungry eyes. So you are trying to steal my son from me, she said. He is all I have, and you are trying to steal him. Oh, mother, for goodness sake, be sensible, muttered Teddy. He, he tells me to be sensible, Mrs. Kent echoed tragically to the moon. Sensible. Yes, sensible, said Teddy angrily. There's nothing to make such a fuss about. Emily was locked in the church by accident, and mad Mr. Morrison was there too, and nearly frightened her to death. I came to let her out, and we were sitting here for a few minutes until she got over her fright and was able to walk home. That's all. How did you know she was here? demanded Mrs. Kent. How indeed. This was a hard question to answer. The truth sounded like a silly, stupid invention. Nevertheless, Teddy told it. She called me, he said bluntly. And you heard her, a mile away. Do you expect me to believe that? said Mrs. Kent, laughing wildly. Emily had by this time recovered her poise. At no time in her life was Emily Birdstar ever disconcerted for long. She drew herself up proudly, and in the dim light, in spite of her star features, she looked much like Elizabeth Murray must have looked thirty years before. Whether you believe it or not, it is true, Mrs. Kent, she said haughtily. 
I'm not stealing your son. I do not want him. He can go. I'm going to take you home first, Emily, said Teddy. He folded his arms and drew back his head and tried to look as stately as Emily. He felt that he was a dismal failure at it, but it imposed on Mrs. Kent. She began to cry. Go, go, she said. Go to her. Desert me. Emily was thoroughly angry now. If this irrational woman persisted in making a scene, very well, a scene she would have. I won't let him take me home, she said, freezingly. Teddy, go with your mother. Oh, you command him, do you? He must do as you tell him, must he? cried Mrs. Kent, who now seemed to lose all control of herself. Her tiny form was shaken with violent sobs. She wrung her hands. He shall choose for himself, she cried. He shall go with you or come with me. Choose, Teddy, for yourself. You shall not do her bidding. Choose. She was fiercely dramatic again as she lifted her hand and pointed it at poor Teddy. Teddy was feeling as miserable and impotently angry as any male creature does when two women are quarrelling about him in his presence. He wished himself a thousand miles away. What a mess to be in, and to be made ridiculous like this before Emily. Why on earth couldn't his mother behave like other boys' mothers? Why must she be so intense and exacting? He knew Blair Water gossip said she was a little touched. He did not believe that. But, but well, in short, here was a mess. You come back to that every time. What on earth was he to do? If he took Emily home, he knew his mother would cry and pray for days. On the other hand, to desert Emily after her dreadful experience in church and leave her to traverse that lonely road alone was unthinkable. But Emily now dominated the situation. She was very angry with the icy anger of old Hugh Murray that did not dissipate itself in idle bluster but went straight to the point. You are a foolish, selfish woman, she said, and you will make your son hate you. Selfish, 
You call me selfish, sobbed Mrs. Kent. I live only for Teddy. He is all I have to live for. You are selfish. Emily was standing straight. Her eyes had gone black. Her voice was cutting. The Murray look was on her face. And in the pale moonlight was a rather fearsome thing. She wondered as she spoke how she knew certain things. But she did know them. You think you love him. It is only yourself you love. You are determined to spoil his life. You won't let him go to Shrewsbury because it will hurt you to let him go away from you. You have let your jealousy of everything he cares for eat your heart out and master you. You won't bear a little pain for his sake. You are not a mother at all. Teddy has a great talent. Everyone says so. You ought to be proud of him. You ought to give him a chance. But you won't. And some day, he will hate you for it. Yes, he will. Oh no, no, moaned Mrs. Kent. She held up her hands as if to ward off a blow and shrank back against Teddy. Oh, you are cruel, cruel. You don't know what I've suffered. You don't know what ache is always in my heart. He is all I have. All. I have nothing else. Not even a memory. You don't understand. I can't. I can't give him up. If you let your jealousy ruin his life, you will lose him, said Emily inexorably. She had always been afraid of Mrs. Kent. Now, she was suddenly no longer afraid of her. She knew she would never be afraid of her again. You hate everything he cares for. You hate his friends and his dog and his drawing. You know you do. But you can't keep him that way, Mrs. Kent. And you will find out when it is too late. Good night, Teddy. Thank you again for coming to my rescue. Good night, Mrs. Kent. Emily's good night was very final. She turned and stalked across the green without another glance, holding her head high. Down the wet road she marched, at first very angry, then, as anger ebbed, very tired. Oh, horribly tired. She discovered that she was fairly shaking with weariness. The emotions of the night had exhausted her. And now, what to do? She did not like the idea of going home to New Moon. 
Emily felt that she should never face outraged Aunt Elizabeth if the various scandalous doings of this night should be discovered. She turned in at the gate of Dr. Burnley's house. His doors were never locked. Emily slipped into the front hall as the dawn began to whiten in the sky and curl up on the lounge behind the staircase. There was no use in waking Ilsa. She would tell her the whole story in the morning and bind her to secrecy. All, at least, except one thing Teddy had said, and the episode of Mrs. Kent. One was too beautiful, and the other too disagreeable to be talked about. Of course, Mrs. Kent wasn't like other women, and there was no use in feeling too badly about it. Nevertheless, she had wrecked and spoiled a frail, beautiful something. She had blotched with absurdity a moment that should have been eternally lovely. And she had, of course, made poor Teddy feel like an ass. That, in the last analysis, was what Emily really could not forgive. As she drifted off to sleep, she recalled drowsily the events of that bewildering night. Her imprisonment in the lonely church. The horror of touching the dog. The worse horror of mad Mr. Morrison's pursuit. Her rapture of relief at Teddy's voice. The brief little moonlit idol in the graveyard. Of all places for an idol. The tragic comic advent of poor, morbid, jealous Mrs. Kent. I hope I wasn't too hard on her, thought Emily, as she drifted into slumber. If I was, I'm sorry. I'll have to write it down as a bad deed in my diary. I feel somehow as if I've grown up all at once tonight. Yesterday seems years away. But what a chapter it will make for my diary. I'll write it all down. All but Teddy's saying I was the sweetest girl in the world. That's too dear to write. I'll just remember it.